Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. Do we have a corporate oligarchy in America? Let's talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And if you want to get my latest class, The Age of Jackson, for the best price you'll ever see it, Use that coupon code MANIFESTDESTINY at checkout and get 80 bucks off. It's a great class. You're going to love it, I guarantee it. If you like the podcast, you'll love the classes at McLean Academy. And all those classes keep this podcast free of charge. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can go to Spotify for podcasters or click on the Super Thanks button if you're watching on YouTube. Throw a few pennies my way all those ways. You can click on the Shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Makes great Christmas gifts or buy one of my books at... Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com. But as always, a painless way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. Getting close to 6,000 subscribers on YouTube, so that's great. I mean, we start, started with nothing. Uh, and even though the growth has been incremental, I still appreciate every single person that listens to the show and every single person that subscribes and gives me that review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for Podcasts, whatever, wherever you get your podcast, leaving those reviews certainly helps. All right, well, let's talk about the topic, and that is the corporate oligarchy in America. And this is a really interesting topic because the question is, do conservatives, are, are conservatives anti-class consciousness? This is something that really comes out with Marxism. Marxism at least on the surface, is concerned about class, class consciousness. There's a, uh, a, a middle class, uh, the bourgeois. There's, of course, the merchant class. There's the feudal lords. There's the proletariat. You have classes everywhere. Marxism, at its core, is about conflict between these classes and how those classes respond to that conflict. Now, one thing conservatives have always recognized, at least until recently, was that class does exist. Economic class does exist, but more importantly also, there are cultural distinctions to be made. And what's happened in America is rather remarkable. And a lot of this has to do, of course, with the Straussianism that we see, the West Coast Straussianism, is that there's a, a lack of understanding of this culture and class. And I'm not saying all these people do that. But it's a leveling. The American nationalism is a destruction of the regionalism that made America strong. We've lost almost all of that now. Um, if you go back into the middle of the 20th century, even you still had regional dialects in the Congress. You have very little of that anymore. There isn't really anything there. 
And anyone that sounds distinct, unless it's a New England accent, which is acceptable, but Southern accent is not really acceptable anymore. Um, but generally, people don't want to have these these separate dialects. And when I was a in junior high school, I had a teacher from Alabama uh, who didn't want to sound like she was from Alabama. She wanted to sound like she was from the Midwest, and she worked very hard to get rid of her Alabama accent. She talked about that because she was told that she would never get a job sounding like she was from Alabama, which was, I mean, you think about it now, that's remarkable. But if you go listen to the news, you listen to talk, whatever it is, you're going to hear a Midwestern American accent. There's nothing to it. It's the most bland, boring, uh, you know, cultureless accent you're going to get. Why? Well, because we've tried to level all cultures, make all cultures equal in America, make all this, this idea of equality, we, we try to level society completely, not just economic leveling or social leveling, but also cultural leveling. This is what is happening in America. And so conservatives have long recognized those distinctions whether it's culture, whether it's class, economic class, whether it's other variations in humanity, they recognize those distinctions. Oftentimes, this the opponents will use this against them and say, well, see, you people are just a bunch of X, Y, and Z mean people, and uh, we, we need to not vote you into power because you don't believe in equality. Well, this is where the Straussians have tried to make equality into conservative by saying that, yes, we do believe in equality. There's a citizen, and it's an American citizen, and everyone's the same. And, and certainly under the law, equality under the law for citizens was, was what the founding generation thought about. I mean, that was important, equality under the law, if you were a citizen. If you weren't a citizen, that didn't apply. And that's important to understand. It wasn't just basic human equality. You had people like George Washington mention things like human rights, and people brought this stuff up. But equality had a limited definition. And it's something I've mentioned on this podcast before. There's the 1607 project that the Abbeville Institute is working on, and we will have a conference on that in the winter of next year. Um, and we have a, a book coming out with that and a documentary. But that's key to understanding it, right? There is Virginia matters, and the Virginia concept of equality even outside of Jefferson and what he actually meant by that. That matters. So this is an important discussion to have. And there was a great essay at Law and Liberty on this topic the other day by Nicole Williams, who's a very good scholar of uh, Southern culture and society. And the title is Our Corporate Oligarchy. And I found there was, this was a response to another article that appeared on the website by Bruce Fronin um, about American conservatism. And she does a very good job defining it, and not just that, explaining how conservatives have long been economically, culturally conscious, and that there are distinctions. Uh, there is a class to things. Some things are better than others. Some cultures are better than others. I mean, this is just, and it could just be a bias in your own, but... Um, these things matter in society and we need to stop playing the game that everything is equal because it isn't. And conservatives have long been in favor of that until recently where we've tried to erase class and we've tried to uh, think about things in a different way, a different economic model. So 
Let me get into the piece. She says, during a remote video conference meeting with several co-workers in the spring of 2020, the topic of lockdown orders came up. While most eagerly favored the measures, I asked, what about small businesses forced to close? People stood to lose their livelihoods, most of whom had spent much of their lives building without recompense. One highly educated and well-compensated colleague derisively replied, it's for the greater good. The contempt in her voice was apparent. At this moment, I realized the veil of feigning compassion for working class and small-town Americans was over. The pandemic and government-ordered lockdowns exacerbated and laid bare decades in the making the chasm between the elites, their constituents, and the common man and woman. This is true. I mean, you certainly had a situation where people that could take off, people that could work, work remotely, people that could do all these things, would benefit from this, whereas people who couldn't, people who had to go into work and punch a time clock or they didn't get paid. They couldn't in businesses where you had to go into work and sell your wares, a merchant, uh, a restaurant, whatever it was. These people were just going to go out of business. And you saw it all over the place. It was a blood, it was a bloodbath for people. So the government printed trillions of dollars to try to bail people out of this because they imposed it. The real evil in the COVID lockdown was not COVID. It was government. And it wasn't the federal government. It was the state and local governments who went along with the nonsense. In some states, not everywhere, but in some states. So she says, before the conflagration of the Floyd riot spread across the country, there was a spat of protest by aggrieved craftsmen and women who were denied the opportunity to earn a living by lockdown measures. Media personalities and politicians quickly turned on these dissenting voices, especially those unable to work remotely. This is true, right? Think about the George Floyd situation and all the people that said, well, you shouldn't protest unless it's for George Floyd, then it's okay. Then you can, you can be out around people as long as it's protesting for George Floyd. But if it's, not, if it's not for Floyd, if it's because you want to go to work, well, that's not an acceptable protest. These things aren't acceptable. You can't do that. And it's the elitism. It's the disdain for people that actually have to go do things. It's important. The left has lost its blue-collar attachment. Any, any blue-collar worker that continues to vote for those people is a lunatic. You've lost your mind. Now, I'm not saying the Republican Party is much better. If you're going to vote for the elites, this is the interesting thing about what's happening in Congress. The elites are being attacked by about 12 people. And those 12 people are creating chaos. And the elites don't like it. They don't like it at all. we got to do the people's business. The progressives just want to pass legislation to abuse everybody. So they, they just want to be in power. But the elites don't like a challenge to their authority, a challenge to their supremacy and hegemony over everybody else. The corporate elites don't like it. The political elites don't like it. The establishment class, which is all unified. And when you talk about the uniparty, it exists. People have been saying this now for 50 years. It really exists now. And it's just becoming apparent. More and more people are realizing it as we've gone through all of these very weird things that have happened in the last three years. She says, Class division has always been present throughout American history and until the 1980s had been a significant concern of conservative philosophers. True. They worried about it. But again, it depends on which conservatives you're asking about. Because there are those that were called conservative that really didn't worry about it too much, but many did. For example, is William F. Buckley a conservative or is George Wallace a conservative? George Wallace, you could argue, was much more of an American conservative than William F. Buckley. Much more of one. 
even though Wallace drove Buckley mad. She says, American conservatism, arguably rooted in the federal tradition or enshrined in the Constitution, continuously accounted for hierarchy and the division of social and economic class distinction. Yeah, true. I mean, it is rooted in the federal tradition. You have to... Look, American conservatism, which is a unique kind of conservatism, has to be based on federalism because federalism recognizes the social and economic class distinctions, cultural distinctions as well. It recognizes, more importantly, as cultural distinctions. It recognizes that and allows for those states to deal with those things on their own. As discussed by Bruce Fronin's Lead It Forum essay, a discussion of class difference and its role within American society is most certainly warranted. Yet conservatives often overlook the role of capitalism, specifically corporate capitalism, and fomenting upheaval and furthering class division in American society. Again, very true. Corporatism, corporate capitalism, is an issue. And it's something a lot of people don't realize. Uh, it, it, it has to be an issue. This goes all the way back to Henry Clay, to Alexander Hamilton. It's why I wrote the book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. It, you have to have this discussion. While free markets and private property rights are paramount to all American conservatives, corporate capitalism has wrought chaos throughout the class strata that has been a permanent feature in American society because corporations are non-people. And even what's really interesting is you go back to uh, some of the radical Republicans and some things that they said, and even back to some Supreme Court decisions, they talk about corporations being non-people. Uh, there was a certain disdain for corporations, even among some of these reformers. They didn't really like them a whole lot. And it's only through time that corporations have taken on the role of a person. And this is, again, through the Supreme Court. They did this, but they've taken on the role of a person. So corporations have long been a, a real problem in American history. And conservatives, for a long time, real conservatives, resisted that. Real American conservatives resisted, re, resisted corporatism. And it wasn't, when you get to the late 19th, early 20th century, you start to see the shift. And then, of course, it eventually takes over the quote-unquote conservative faction in America. The rise of corporate capitalism in the 19th century disincentivized the wealthy ruling class from its paternalistic obligations to those in the middling and lower classes. So they couldn't, they had no obligation to these people, right? So when I mean, you get corporate capitalism, which is funded by the government, right? Funded by, uh, it, it's a fusion of government and capitalism. This is what Jefferson worried about, what John Taylor of Caroline worried about. Well, then there's no role, there's no paternalism whatsoever in that. You just pass it off to the state and the state takes care of it. These obligations were built upon generations of experience and were intended to minimize social discord and upheaval. I think back to uh, Fuller Calloway, and it's a talk I gave at uh, Calloway Gardens uh, last year during the 20th anniversary Happyville Institute conference, and what he said about what he did. He built textile mills to make American citizens. This was the whole point. It was paternalistic. And that was certainly a much more Southern model than Northern model, but a lot of Northerners would do it too. You think of George Westinghouse, for example, followed this model. And, but um, that's, that went away once you had the state get involved in these things. She says, while these lessons should have been reinforced by the revolutions of 48 in Western Europe, they were largely ignored in the name of progress and modernization throughout the Western world. 
Capitalist elites and progressive governing institutions dismiss the value of communal relationships, tradition, and cultural practices as unquantifiable and did not serve the needs of nascent industrializing economies. So what's the real catch here? Industrialization, modernism, modernity, progress. These are terms that start creeping in and destroying culture, right? So she brings up communal relationships, tradition, and culture. Those things matter. Culture being a distinction that matters. And conservatives, again, used to recognize this. They don't so much anymore, but they used to. Although modern conservatives may view such criticism of corporate capitalism as Marxist, it is, in fact, deeply rooted in the conservative tradition. Absolutely. That's a great statement. It's not Marxist. This is where Hofstetter called Calhoun the Marx of the master class, and he got into some of that. But it's not Marxist at all. It's a recognition of distinctions. It's a recognition of divisions in society based on a variety of things. And those divisions matter. She says, of course, we don't live in 19th century America. However, critiques of capitalism and class divisions are more necessarily or more necessary now than in the past. Even as Thomas Jefferson famously acknowledged the existence of a natural aristocracy based on talent and merit. Others said this too. And it wasn't just Jefferson. Hamilton can't I mean, believe this stuff. His contemporaries did not dismiss out of hand the necessary role that those of the lower strata of society perform. Likewise, many who had attained positions within our informal aristocracy abided by the concept of noblesse oblige, which recognized that an ordered society in part depends on the obligation elites owed to those who labored in the middling and lower strata of society to whom the elites owed their position. While the concept was draped in virtue, it also had a practical application to preserve social tranquility and avoid turmoil. The ascendancy of industrial capitalism challenged the old order and injected turmoil into a, the daily lives of people across the socioeconomic strata of society. So again, it erases industrial capitalism sponsored by government, whether it's tariffs, whether it's which is corporate welfare, whether it's internal improvements federally funded, which is corporate welfare, whether it's a banking, you know, national banking acts or anything else you can come up, which is corporate welfare. All of that creates a situation where you, again, eradicate all of these old traditional things. She says, as Fronin points out, associational life has been under constant threat, particularly in the 20th century. Markets for goods and services expanded far beyond the local or regional, and to keep pace, many found that they had to borrow money from local banks who in turn held obligations to larger remote institutions. As a result, the relationship between borrower and creditor was depersonalized. Borrowing became necessary for farmers to keep abreast of efficiencies demanded by market prices. The change in turn placed considerable financial pressure on families who were forced to relocate to towns and cities to work in factories and mills. All that's true. Now, I will say this, and I I talk about this a lot in other places, but not all these people hated that. You did have farmers that were willing to get off the farm, and they liked working for a factory better because it was a constant paycheck. And that was the trade-off. And they were willing to take it because there was no more fluctuation uh, in market prices or anything else. They took the trade-off. They took the salary because it was better, the wage because it was better to them, and there was no more uncertainty. But, of course, it is going to have a side effect to that, and that is the erosion of these things that she's talking about in this essay. 
This new arrangement was complicated for many families who had previously lived an agrarian lifestyle. John Crow Ransom described this new arrangement in the Southern Agrarian Critique of Industrial Capitalism, I'll Take My Stand, as hard, fierce, and insecure. Separated from their folkways, extended families, communities, and centers of religion and religious and civic life, many ordinary Americans struggle to make sense of their changing world. And that is true. There was a cultural uh, collateral damage of this that's often lost. So the economic might have been more stable in some ways, though you lose some economic independence. But the cultural collateral damage was tremendous. And that's, again, something that is not necessarily brought out. By the mid-20th century, some semblance of order had returned. American servicemen and their families who had suffered through the Great Depression and separation during World War II were eager for remuneration in their suffering, for their sufferings. They found a reprieve in the post-war economic prosperity that resulted in the construction of new, clean, suburban communities and access to inexpensive material goods. Now, one thing we have to understand is during the Great Depression, you couldn't even buy sugar. You couldn't buy gasoline. You couldn't buy rubber tires. And so all that comes back, and people are willing, oh my gosh, it's a boom, we can do all this stuff again. And there was a, certainly a, an acceptance and a, and a satisfaction in all of that. Plus, the war is over and all the chaos that came with that. So, yeah, I mean, they were willing to, to embrace this because it was something peaceful and not insecure. Despite this, the corporate capitalists, and by extension the state, were unsatisfied and attempted to homogenize the cultural landscape and centralized power to create an American-led global corporate regime. The poor and working classes soon discovered that the revolutionary project of global corporate capitalism would inject further turmoil into their lives. So, yes, there was a certain um, transformation. The corporate world, as she says, wanted to homogenize the cultural landscape and centralize power. Culture, it's the distinctions. It's not necessarily class. She's using the term class, but she's really talking about culture in this. That's the collateral damage of the American empire. And, and culture does matter. And, and again, that's what conservatives were long concerned about. It used to be that, you know, weren't really concerned about these. This is what we would call the, uh, the culture war, right? I mean, well, let's just worry about taxes and let's worry about, you know, government spending and these kind of things. But that miss, this is Pat Buchanan in, in 1992, you're missing the, the bigger picture. The culture is being destroyed by the establishment class. In the decades that followed and through the opening of other markets worldwide, the secure position that American labor once held began to slip away. Technology and efficiency flattened society and culture. Respect for the land where families had lived for generations, as well as churches, graveyards, and other places once deemed sacred, were dismissed as insignificant by both government and capital alike. Everything had a price, and everything was for sale. This destructive tendency inherent within industrial capitalism was for a period embraced by many who'd experienced the untold hardship and poverty of earlier decades, both in America and abroad. Government and capital grew ever more intertwined, and Americans, particularly those in the lower classes, would suffer as a result. Moreover, American business, Americans, I'm sorry, became increasingly enamored with prestige, status, and materialism. For those who could not achieve these ends, many turned to forms of self-abuse, such as alcoholism, drugs, or intense social isolation. Society turned inward, even as markets for goods and information exploded globally. As Peter Colsey eloquently stated in Conservatives Against Capitalism, quote, an economic thinking became dominant. As economic thinking became dominant, civilization's focus turned to the pursuit of self-interest, profit, and material consumption of luxury, which led to decadence. Self-interest and aggrandizement allowed so-called conservatives to blame those in the lower strata of socioeconomic life for their failings. 
After all, so-called conservatives famously paraded about the mantra that anyone could succeed in America if they worked hard enough. Now, the person that really start, started that, I don't know if you really call him a conservative, but that was you know, Andrew Carnegie in the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century, really the self-made man rags riches. And of course, even before that, you had you know the, the story of Lincoln, and, but you had this, this myth that was created, and, and Carnegie really did a lot of that. And of course, John D. Rockefeller, the man that was, you know, look at this guy, richest man in the history of the world, came from nothing. A poor Baptist who makes all this. And so, but there's only one John D. Rockefeller. And there's only one Bill Gates. And there's only one all of this. So that's the real issue. And um, people don't, don't think about that. It was never that simple. Fronin asserts that the displacement of families, states, and local civil and religious associations was partly a result of the dispensation made by the central government. This was exacerbated by a corporate oligarchy that utilized the government to create a regulatory apparatus designed to further its authority, often to the detriment of small business owners, independent tradesmen, women, and the many blue-collar workers who toiled in American manufacturing. It's interesting that she uses those different groups. If you read um, Who Owns America, she mentioned, I'll take my stand, but Who Owns America is better because it actually includes, includes all of these people in it. It's not just the agrarian manifesto, it's a working class manifesto. It's, and it's, it's an American type of working class manifesto, um, which is really interesting. It's why you should, you should definitely get that book. Any person or organization that questioned or objected to corporate power was often scorned as liberals or socialists by prevailing voices in the Republican Party. And this stuff still happens. If you question capitalism or you question the state, state capitalism, you question Henry Clay, you question Alexander Hamilton, you're not sufficiently conservative. You're just a radical Jeffersonian. You're a leftist. All those distinctions are ridiculously stupid. But it's what we've gotten because why? Progressives took over the narrative of what these things actually meant. Big business, in other words, what she's arguing here is that big business isn't inherently conservative. It's actually progressive. And if you look at the people that were driving it, a lot of them were progressives. In a, in a very important way, they're not reform progressives. Uh, they're business progressives. And business progressives are just as destructive as reform progressives because it homogenizes things. And it's all in the name of profit. And you'll bulldoze everything to get it. So there are two sides to the progressive coin. That's what all these people are. The conservatives were resisting all of this stuff. Corporate capitalism found a willing friend of the Republican Party. They upheld economic interests to the detriment of societal stability, dismissed class divisions, and quickly attempted to dismantle the welfare state whilst doing almost nothing to buoy the fortunes of the family and civil society on which many who survived on the periphery of material wealth had depended for generations. The virtues of restraint, participation in civic life, and honesty eroded in the face of capitalist virtues such as profit-seeking and instant gratification. Noblesse oblige made way for sneering comments such as learn to code. So they didn't care about this. And they don't really care about poor people. They care about their own power and wealth. And that matters. Okay. And this is where George Wallace, when, when Buckley says to George Wallace, how can you call yourself a conservative when you had old age pensions? You favored old age pensions. Yeah, at the state level. And Wallace said, well, I don't want old people starving. I don't want old people dying in my state. I'm for those people. Oh, that's not really conservative. It isn't. Now, if you're talking about the federal level where it's unconstitutional, well, then sure. But at the state level, I mean, these things are on the table because the states can do this stuff. 
Maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's not. Those are debates that can be had there. The real issue, of course, is federal power, and that should always be the case. In the face of intense competition for educational, career, and materialistic achievement, identity shifted from place, tradition, and family to race, sex, sexual, and gender orientation. The younger generation, particularly those who had grown up in economically prosperous circumstances, scorned class differences and found purpose in upholding radical notions of privilege and new associations divorced from traditional values or virtues and institutions. Capitalists and the government were quick to foster and nurture these social cleavages. Uh, and this is true. I mean, all that stuff comes out of this. And all these traditional things are gone, and they've re been replaced with other divisions. And look, uh, this is all a, a, a off, an offshoot of Marxism. It, it works that way. You create divisions, and the divisions have to be in some way or another. It has to be a, a conflict somewhere. And all of these very prosperous and decadent people had nothing else to worry about. So they worried about these things because there was a uniculture, right? And that uniculture, that national, had to be enforced. That proposition nation myth. Culture disruption and the new morality embraced by corporate capitalists have done everything in their power over the last decade to undermine further remnants of civic and religious associations, traditions, and folk cultures of nearly every long-standing ethnic group in this country. For the insulated elite classes, this created little disturbance. However, for the geographically disparate and ethnically diverse lower strata of American society, society, the results were profound. Separated from their history and traditions, corporate capitalists, along with the many, many in the Republican Party, encouraged these great unwashed to relocate for economic opportunity, often into cosmopolitan enclaves. As GDP increased, alienation, isolation, and depression followed. Right. Now, I've suggested... Um, that you can vote with your feet. And of course, people respond to that at times and think locally, act locally. Well, I mean, how's that going to work? I've been in this situation for generations, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then it, you're in a real pickle, and I understand that. So you have to try to work within what you have if you're going to stay. And that is, of course, an issue. While there may be little that the central government can do to reverse course and maintain its hold on the lives of Americans, there is a role for conservatives and conservatism to remedy the the state of our society. Instead of leaning into a particular brand of libertarianism that would facilitate capitalist influence and authority over government and society, conservatives should restrain the privileges given to today's oligarchs. Conservatives would do well to remind themselves of the duty of inheritance. We have inherited traditions and values from those who came before, and as stewards, we have an obligation to preserve those for future generations. We are amidst a continuous revolution sought by corporate capitalists. Instead of seeking to sustain the unsustainable fantasy of economic growth at all costs, American conservatives should dismantle nearly every unconstitutional apparatus of the central government and transfer that authority back to the states and by implication the people. I mean, this is think locally, act locally, and it's exactly right. You, you dismantle the center because the center, because of the corporate welfare, is what's driving all this stuff. So if you take away the center, well, then there's, these things become so fragmented it's much harder to do. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean California can't drive something or New Hampshire or... Uh, whatever, or you know, Maine, Massachusetts, or even Alabama or Virginia or Montana. It doesn't mean these places can't drive the culture in some ways. Texas, Florida, they can. But it's much harder to do. This is where Hume talked about the ideal republic, where you decentralize so much that no, no corruption or no, no money seekers could gain any power because they had too many people to try to shell out money to. 
Moreover, conservatives should energetically advocate for constitutional federalism and support local governance, civic participation, and limits on interference from outside corporate and financial institutions. Citizens should sense that they have agency over their own lives, and within that will come, with the solid encouragement of state and local officials, organic growth in the associations and cultural traditions will once again assert themselves across every strata of ethnic, religious, and communal life. Well, I would hope so. I mean, this is think locally and act locally in action, but uh, that's the point, which is why I found this essay interesting, because at its core, it really is traditionally American conservatives. They think local and act local is traditionally American conservative. You're not looking for the center. You're not looking for being bailed out by uh, some lofty ideology at the center or whatever it is. You do it in your own community. You sweep around your own back door, and that's what you do to take care of things. All right. Found this essay really interesting. There's long been a problem with corporate welfare and, of course, the fusion of government, finance capital, government, and big business. This is what the Jeffersonians pointed out. It's what they were so worried about in the early 19th century, and we see the results of that in modern American society. See you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.